Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Daniel Storey of The I Newspaper. Manchester United have now gone four seasons without a trophy. Their inert performance in the Europa League final has raised fundamental questions that we'll attempt to answer later on. But first, another indication of how high the stakes are on football's biggest occasions. As ridiculous as it sounds, a Chelsea win in Porto on Saturday evening would sweep away the first whispered doubts about Thomas Tuchel. For Pep Guardiola, the Champions League final is much more clear-cut. Victory would be a signature achievement. Miggs, would it also confirm his legacy as one of the great coaches? I'd say it would probably just give us the record that appropriately crowns it, because I don't think there's any doubt really at this point that Guardiola is one of the, the best managers to ever been involved in football. He's probably the most, one of the most influential up there with Arrigo Saki, Rias Michels, Elena Herrera, in that what he's done has had a profound influence on how football is played. And of course, Johan Cruyff as well, I should say. But I mean, even as you can see from Cruyff's career, there's sometimes an odd thing between influences and truly successful managers and that the influential managers almost kind of, they do one thing and blaze it after a while. It's almost like they have that one revolution. So Cruyff only won that one European Cup and actually managed seven years. It's almost been similar with Saki, actually, who, as brilliant as that AC Milan team were, they actually only won one league title and two European Cups, which, I mean, and the one league title almost feels almost underperformance given the historic status of that side. Whereas, obviously now, with, with Pep Guardiola, we could have both the influence, but also this astounding success. I mean, he's already one of the most successful managers of all time in terms of league titles with nine. And it does feel like that three European Cups matching that Bob Paisley's in it in Zidane and now Carlo Ancelotti record would really confirm that and put out, I, I just almost lead to uh, the completeness to his record. Although I must say, it's, it, it does feel surprising that it's now been 10 years since his last European Cup. I think I, I, I was in Wembley on the event of his last one. I think anyone who watched the Barcelona that day, in fact, anyone who watched him anywhere, would have thought he would have maybe claimed a third and maybe a fourth before then. So 
I mean, it's almost become that kind of holy grail quality for him as well. Yeah, it certainly has. I suppose you know one of the things which has defined this season is the way that you can almost visibly see Pep's influence in the evolution of this current team. On that, Dan, how good do you think this City team is, say, compared to his others at Barca and even Bayern? I think this is probably a little bit different because it, it feels like the first time that Guardiola really came under serious pressure having already gained the success that he wanted. So, you know, he, he came under pressure in his first season in England. There was talk about whether he could kind of thrive in the Premier League and he made those doubters look pretty silly pretty quickly with the, with the two league titles. At the start of this season, I think there probably were whispers or maybe even louder than that about whether he could create a second great team at Manchester City. And he seems to have done that very much on the job. And winning the Champions League would clearly be the, the crowning glory of that. And he would argue, I think, that they have been the best team in Europe this season and therefore deserve it. He he spoke this week about maybe the coin just fell on our side, which I think is probably more a reference to bad luck in previous years than good luck this year. But it does feel more than ever, you know, that if they win the Champions League final on Saturday, they'll become the first team to win 11 Champions League games in the same season. Bayern won every game last season in a kind of short knockout stage. So it would feel like a real dominant statement of of, of not just Guardiola's brilliance and how he's changed this team, but also something he's done a little bit different in kind of building a second great team. At Barcelona, I think, you know, Lionel Messi was was always a standout player, Xavi and Iniesta in midfield, Busquets at Bayern. It didn't really happen in the Champions League. This, to me, would feel a little bit different to that. Yeah. In specifics, Miguel, you know, there's been a new role for Gundogan. We've all looked at that no-striker system. I suppose there's also been a recovery of trusting John Stones. What has been the decisive innovation, do you think, this season? Well, I think from what I've heard from people around Manchester City, and I know we've discussed this in terms of the league title, he ha- he did basically adapt their conditioning programme around autumn to ensure they wouldn't burn out and has, ma- has basically made a more restrained Manchester City where they haven't pressed in the same way, doesn't have the same breaks. So they've been that bit more based on solidity, which is obviously where the signing of Ruben Diaz is so key. And I suppose, I mean, it... it, it Let's not lose sight of this. It does help in a, in, a, in a year when no one else can really spend bar, bar their opponents, Chelsea. You're able to sign £100 million worth of centre-backs and, and one of them, could, you don't even need him to barely play at all. But, but, uh, but in saying that, of course, there are, it, there's always two issues here with Guardiola. Yes, he's been blessed with great resources at all of the clubs he's been at, but ultimately he is one of those resources. People pay for his genius as a manager. And in that, I think he basically solved pandemic football. And in this case, that really means the intensity, huge demands of this schedule, which has been unprecedented in football history. I think that's added to City's sense of security. And let's not forget, of course, as well, in October, when you you spoke to anyone around Manchester City, there was a widespread feeling that this was maybe all close to being done, that the players were actually really fatigued with Guardiola's intensity, you know, that classic thing of kind of needing change after three or four years. It has to be either the manager or the players. Now, to be fair, he has altered the spine of the team. But yeah, I think it's really a mixture of all those things and maybe just a shift towards a slightly more solid city, which has made a difference. And then, and that's radiated in performances where previously 
there's been anxiety games. And I actually think the, the game was against uh, Dortmund and the halftime switch at Paris Saint-Germain were key to this. Whereas previously there's been anxiety in big Champions League games with City. Here there was only assurance. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, looking back to those Dortmund matches, Daniel, about, you know, basically Phil Foden scored the winning goals in, in, in both of the, uh, both legs. That's a sign of his ability to, to excel in the biggest of games. Where do you rate him now in, in European terms or even global terms? He's, he's 21 on Friday. Best young player in Europe? It probably slightly depends how you define young. I think Kylian Mbappe is, is probably still comes under that definition and is, is probably a more valuable asset than him. I think in different positions, you could argue, make cases for, for Eduardo Camavinga and Alfonso Davies and Erling Haaland, but I think he's probably the best young attacking midfielder in world football. And he's English and has seems to have this ability to rise to the occasion rather than shy away from it, which and to the, the kind of maturity within games to retain the ball rather than panic when he's pressured, which is distinctly un-English for those of us who have, have watched the national team over the last two, three, however many <laughs> decades. So, yeah, I mean, you know, credit to, to City, credit to, to the academy to an extent, credit to Guardiola for how he's managed him, but all the youth coaches you speak to about Foden say that this is as a, a freak talent who is always destined to get to the top and had this remarkable skill and a kind of ability to use a skill in the right ways. There's no skill for its own sake here. Everything has a purpose. Everything seems to be driven behind. And in, in a very short space of time, he's become a, a leader of that team and a, a very Pep Guardiola-like player. Yeah. It was interesting you mentioned conditioning earlier on, Migs. Is there a a comparison to be made between Foden and Mason Mount? Foden looks fresher. Now, maybe that's because his workload has been better managed. Mount, to me, has been symptomatic of, of, of Chelsea's you know, recent last two or three games where he's he has seemed almost done, exhausted. You know, we saw last night in the Europa League final, people like Bruno Fernandes looking burnt out. Is there a comparison to be made between the two? Yeah, possibly, yes. And maybe it doesn't just apply to this season, but also their careers in that... Mount went for so much football early on, went on loan, whereas Foden didn't. And it's only had kind of this blast of football in the last year, basically changing a lot of the discussion about them. Again, yeah, I think the schedule is an issue. You, I think Mount's last real kind of energetic performance, that way we really associate him, was the Champions League semi-final second leg against Real Madrid when he got the clinching goal. In saying that, I do... T- I mean, it is, with Chelsea as a whole so far... It's still only about those kind of those three games, and they, I, I mean, there, there was a significant drop off against Leicester in the cup final, and I was at a Villa Park on Sunday, and they were mostly just fairly unconvincing. They did dominate the game and have a lot, a lot of chances. Mount missed probably one of their biggest chances when it was nil all, blazing it over. But in between that, they had been excellent against Leicester in the league. So maybe it's, it's still maybe a little short to read into, and and who knows? Well. The, the week of break with this game, where, where suddenly, I mean, and it's, that's been very rare this season, where teams don't have a midweek game, and particularly Chelsea, given the many competitions they've been involved in, and and maybe that will do them good ahead of Saturday. But certainly, Foden goes in on a much sharper form. But it's been remarkable about these young two young players as well. I mean, it's not just either that they're um, they're going into this game as you know, 
the, the bright hopes, the bright young hopes that are teams in that way. They're genuinely among the most important players of both clubs. So they've really, they've, you know, they've seized their chance and have really taken on that responsibility. And both having kind of suffered doubts in the same way as well. I mean, Foden, obviously, as you discussed, there was that long debate about how he was being used and, and yeah, how, how Guardiola seemed initially reluctant. With Mount, as good as he was last season, there probably was an expectation at two different times this year. One, when they made all those signings in the summer, and two, when Tuchel came in, that he would eventually kind of lose his place. But instead, he's made himself one of Chelsea's most reliable and influential players. In terms of this season, Daniel, Mount is almost the outlier in terms of academy usage, if, if I could put it like that, you know, especially following the departure of Frank Lampard. Looks like Tammy Abraham, Callum hudson Adoy, Tamori, they're all likely to be sold in the summer. Why is there that basic lack of faith, you think? I think we probably need to slightly change our preconceptions about what the academies at, at Big Six clubs are for. I think if you get a, a talent like a Mount or a Foden, then they will break through. But aside from that, there is an awful lot of work being put in and an awful lot of hours spent to create players who aren't necessarily going to break into the first team, but will make the club an awful lot of money. You know, the three players you mentioned, Hudson, Adori, Abraham and Tamori, will probably raise Chelsea £90 million or more this summer, which may well fund a, a, the purchase of a, another superstar to fit the first team model that they believe will, will create a, a serious title challenge. And maybe that's how Chelsea look at it. Maybe they think, well, if we sell those players, if we buy a superstar, if it forges a title bid, a serious title bid, then it's done its job. That might sound a little soul-destroying and slightly depressing, particularly for those of us who have written books about academy football, Mike. But that that <laughs> might be the reality now. Um, I would add Rhys James to the Mason Mount list. He's been, you know, he's come on leaps and bounds. And, and Chelsea's academy with, with James and Mount and Rice have three players who will probably go to the Euros with England this summer. So they'll look on that as a success story. But yeah, I take the point. The pathways are not there because you, you really do have to be an elite footballer or an elite footballer at 19 to have a chance in those first team squads now. Yeah, I think that was very pertinently put, um, Dan, if I might <laughs> say so. Thomas Tuchel seems to be keen on Declan Rice. Migs, you know Chelsea quite well. What are the politics of buying back an academy reject. Well, Chelsea have done it before, of course, with Nemanja Matic. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it wasn't the same degree in that he'd got further into the first team, but they're perfectly willing to sell him uh, and buy him back. And I suppose this is one thing about Chelsea in that regard, in that <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're very much results-based in every sense. There was a feeling, obviously, when Rice was young, that he wasn't up to the standards of his close friend, Mason Mount. But, but now he's <laughs> very much up to those standards at West Ham United after a brilliant season, after maybe performing a role that Chelsea maybe have some issues with. And uh, I, I don't think they have any... And of course, they're, they're perfectly willing to go from last year under Lampard. So I think this is one place where the politics are quite clear with Chelsea. If the ends justifies the means. Yeah. Speaking of which, on Saturday night, can you define, Dan, please, the areas of the game that you think will prove decisive? And if so, who do you think will come out on top? Well, I, I I think Chelsea are going to have to counter-attack really, really well. I think not just well, but efficiently, because depending on how City play, they may not get a huge amount of chances to do it. But for all the criticism of Tino Werner, and, and appropriately so in, in front of goal, his movement off the ball has been pretty good in terms of 
making space for Maitland Mount with with runs in behind. And if he plays Werner and Havertz and one of Ziyech or Pulisic, then there is potential for that kind of counter-attacking football, which has been the undoing of, of Manchester City in the Champions League. You know, you particularly think back to the Monaco and the Lyon exits where they basically had complete control, but were just caught by maybe a complacency or just defensive sloppiness. I do think that Chelsea are going to have to score first. I think City's ability to control the game. I know Chelsea came from behind against them in the Premier League reasonably recently, but that was a much changed City team. And I think if Chelsea concede first with with the slight doubts about kind of ingrained fatigue, even with a week off before the game, I think it's going to be very hard for them to get back in. But, you know, we've seen that kind of mental frailty in City before. They, they seem to have... A, kind of got rid of that in the Champions League this season. Migsy mentioned, you know, Dortmund and, and PSG in terms of how they responded really well there. But in this kind of game, I think this is maybe the chance we could see it if, if Chelsea score first. But I do think City will win. Mm. Do you agree with that, Migs? I, hmm, I think it's much more 50. I mean, obviously, as by looking at the league table, City are currently, I mean, the English champions, they're probably the best team in Europe. They're a better side than Chelsea. And obviously they're just at different stages of development. Whereas Guardiola has been with the team for so long. He's virtually onto his second cycle now. And the first year the cycle has ended with two trophies so far. All going well, they should win. But, you know, as Tuchel said before their FA Cup semi-final, I mean, he basically made this exact point that City, Chelsea have a long way to go to catch up with City in terms of being able to compete for a title. But in terms of being able to keep compete with them on any one day, that's different. And of course, we've seen that so far, and that Tuchel's beaten them twice in their two games. So I'd have a fair amount... I think by virtue of that alone, and Tuchel's ability to put up with a game plan, I actually think this is a really 50-50 game. And, he, and I think there's also a funny thing with the fact that Chelsea have won twice in a row as well. I mean, there's almost this kind of... Maybe it's a kind of naive, almost childlike expectation that because Chelsea have won two in a row, that City are almost due. That they, they won't let it go. They won't, they won't allow a 100% record. But that can work both ways as well. And that, especially knowing the sort of manager that Guardiola is and how much he obsesses on things. And also how close his football relationship is with Tuchel. I mean, I've, I've, I've done a piece today on how they're both kind of these super obsessives that define this almost this new strand of manager. And with it, with this, this is now almost what's coming to dominate the game. With that, you know, scene in, the, in this meeting they had in 2014 that everyone talks about. But knowing Guardiola and then knowing his obsession with the Champions League as well, that could play in his mind maybe to just maybe potentially make one of these tweaks that doesn't necessarily serve City as well as it might. And I, for, for some time, I have to say, I've had a feeling about Chelsea in this Champions League basically since Tuchel came in. I just have a feeling Chelsea will edge it. Yeah, I must admit, I've got a similar sort of hunch on it. You know, when you're as good a coach as Tuchel, do you go to two you know, successive Champions League finals and lose both? I think the odds of that are uh, probably against that. But we shall see. The last was H- H- Hector Cooper. OK. With Valencia. OK. I suppose, and also, Daniel, you know, what we, you know, we're talking the morning after the Europa League final... These big occasions, as I said right at the top of the show, you know, the result is all that matters. Now, when you manage as meekly as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did, 
you're going to be judged by the result. He was taken to school by Unai Emery. What happens next? I think he was almost taken to school by himself in that he just seemed to kind of fall apart and not really have any answers. I thought that there was a really instructive thing, which was, I think, before extra time, there was a huddle and Solskjaer was kind of on the edge of this huddle and Paul Pogba was giving the, effectively giving this rousing team talk. And I just, you know, Solskjaer's come in for a lot of criticism. Some of it has probably bordered on, on overkill, some probably even for me, but there's constantly been this overwhelming feeling that, Manchester United is probably the club where he's the most likely to succeed, but Manchester United are far more likely to succeed with a better manager in charge. And at some point, they're going to have to make a decision whether they they want this connection with history that they feel can be really special or whether they want to be serious about winning Champions League titles and Premier League titles, which is, is what a club of Manchester United should be aiming for, with or without the problems and reservations about the ownership. So... I'll be honest, without sounding kind of bold about it, it didn't really teach me anything I, I didn't already know about Solskjaer. I, he'd become known as a semi-final manager. Manchester United had a reasonably easy run through the quarters and the semis to the Europa League final. And, and then we saw the same old issues haunt him. Yeah, it was a bit of a um, rabbit in a headlight job, wasn't it? Unless we forget, Migs, over the last sort of 24 hours or so, some big managers have come onto the market. Conte, Zidane, and you know, reading Jack Pick Brook this morning, possibly Pochettino, maybe even going back to, to Spurs. Do United actually um, make up for their perceived error last time and maybe have a go at him? Cancel United moving. The season will be seen as a, broadly a success because he hasn't proved the overall points total. He has got them second. They, I mean, you would have to say as well, they are that bit closer to a title challenge, given they finished second and they had won the last at about two games in January. But that is, that is genuine progress. I didn't mean to be snide and saying two games. And yet, at the same time, given all that, or despite all that, it's difficult not to agree with what Paul Scholes said after the game last night, where, you know, they're closer, but in real terms, are they really close? Can anyone really see them challenging City next year? I mean, again, I'm talking... This is the kind of thing where it comes back to with Solskjaer for me, especially we're we're talking about super obsessives like Guardiola and Tuchel, and then a manager like Solskjaer. Where yes, he does he does make little tactical influences depending on the situation and depending on certain games, but it's just nowhere near near the degree of meticulousness, the degree of preparation, the degree of planning, and the, the, just I suppose the depth of thinking about football that you see in. Someone who is now undeniably the top end coach in the game, Pep Guardiola, and while that's the case, it always feels like United are going to be no 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 matter how close they get to City in kind of points terms, but they're always going to be some way off. And, and added to that, it does feel as well like they have slightly benefited from the, the disruptions to this season. That's not just in terms of COVID, but also in terms of kind of what's going on at some of the other clubs. L- Liverpool did have. This, you know, almost unprecedented injury crisis. You you would expect they would come back very strong or much stronger next season, especially having ultimately kind of straightened things out and and finished third. Chelsea should be much better with a foot with an actual summer to prepare on the Tuchel. At Tottenham, who knows what's going to happen there? If Antonio Conte goes to Tottenham, or if Mauricio Pochettino comes back, they they look very different. 
And I have to say, I'd be surprised if United kicked on that way. And and also, there is a slight danger now that they they, they might have maybe jumped another level with the kind of the psychological effect of a win in the Europa League final. And it's why I think that's actually, that was actually a really big game for Solskjaer last night. Right, the the club mightn't see it as underperformance overall. They'll be happy with the general league league performance. But Solskjaer did want a trophy. And even if that's one they would have usually dismissed, it, it could have been transformative. And I think it was really big. And I, I, my hunch would be that they will drop off again. And I, I mean, I think I've said this in the show many times before, but... <laughs> if I was Manchester United, I would be upgrading on the manager. It's uh, no, no, no matter how competently Solskjaer has done, I think he, he's done a much better job than I expected. I have to say, but ultimately, I don't think he's a top class coach, and United should be appointing a top class manager. Mm, it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed Dan last night the ghost of Christmas past. Sir Alex Ferguson waited for David de Gea after the medal ceremony and, and walked down the tunnel with him. You know, there's a manager, obviously, of of huge and enduring authority, which you can't say that, that Solskjaer radiates. A lot of the inquest has focused on the failure of, of big players or perceived failure of it. Bruno Fernandes, Marcus Rashford, both probably who looked shadows of, of, of their usual selves, Instead of focusing on individuals, should we be looking at United as a collective? Because that was the one thing that came across really strongly from Villarreal's victory, was that it was a group effort, wasn't it? It was, and and, and that's been the, the kind of stereotype of Manchester United this season, even at their best, is that they become a kind of bellwether team on the basis of the performance of, of certain key individuals, none more so than Bruno Fernandes and, and Harry Maguire in defence and, and attack. If if Fernandez fires, if he produces a piece of individual magic for, say, Edison Cavani, then Manchester United are successful. That's not that doesn't completely denigrate everything Solskjaer's done because he's you know he's created a system in which Bruno Fernandez effectively has a, a free role. But when it gets undone by a side with with you know far lower resources, with a a team that contains several Premier League effective failures in Juan Foyth and Francis Coquelin. Questions should be asked. You just don't see any, you know, Mix is right in that there have been some times where Solskjaer has made tactical tweaks that have been successful, but that's not how seasons are defined, as Solskjaer should well know. They're defined by your performance in big games and Manchester United, other than in their games against Manchester City, slightly ironically, have generally fallen short against the bigger teams and been found out. And yeah, I mean it's 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 well below par, and I think the the real danger for Manchester United if they don't act soon is that there's a kind of general decline in in reasonable expectation where suddenly you go into a season thinking, well, if we finish in the top four, that's a success story, which Manchester United fans used to sing and dance about Arsenal doing exactly that, and yet they're in danger of falling into the same boat. I think. Well, isn't that it as well? Like what what Dan mentioned there, basically that there's this issue now where. United could have been going into next season on a on a real wave at Solskjaer won last or sorry United won last night, and again they wouldn't have gone into the season wanting the Europa League, but that's the effect of a trophy and potentially a first trophy. Whereas now it suddenly it just feels like the whole atmosphere has changed again, and he will be going in maybe not pressure from within the club, 
But from outside, and we have seen that has affected United before, especially given they feel like such a wave team where when things are going well, they can actually look really, really good. Whereas when th- when things are not quite right or the raw form, they can look really uncon- unconvincing and really average a team. That's, in fact, alternating between those spells has been almost kind of one of the most identifying hallmarks of Solskjaer's time at the club. Uh, and now we go into next season with just that element of not negativity so much, but just that we that he hasn't had the boost that he could have. That there isn't the same trophy winning atmosphere around the team. And I I do think it it's it's why Wednesday night was important for all sorts of reasons. Essentially, United had a lot to lose in that regard and in losing the game. Yeah, they certainly did, and I suppose it does point out the fact that when we talk about Solskjaer, we talk about a manager who is always going to be one bad result away from a crisis. You know, the sort of thing that you spoke about there, Migs. I, I just want to turn it on its head because I, th- I thought it was, I didn't think it was a very good game, if I'm honest, but as an occasion, I thought it was really uplifting at the end where you have a club like Villarreal from a town of 50,000. You've got players there who've come up through their academy you only had to look at their fans afterwards last night to realise how much that meant to them. And it reminded me that that Super League clubs or owners of Super League clubs are contemptuous of, of clubs like Villarreal. So, Dan, in a way, did the right team win? Well, the better team won. I mean, Manchester United were dominant, but they were still basically trying to rely upon an individual producing something and, and Bruno Fernandes didn't uh, Marcus Rashford certainly didn't I think Manchester United probably deserved to win the game on the balance of play but that, that's not good enough when you have the resources of a Manchester United versus the resources of a Villarreal and yeah it was it was you know other than for Manchester United fans it was incredibly heartwarming to see because this has been a season in which those Super League fan plans were firstly met with righteous anger and then were made to look really foolish indeed by the you know the failure of of Real Madrid and Barcelona and and Paris Saint-Germain and Juventus to to win their domestic leagues and this is another you know a kind of another notch on that bedpost which is great whether it's sustainable is another question but that only probably means we should enjoy the moment more yeah uh, you know we're told and incidentally Migs that the UEFA are planning maybe a, a one year Champions League ban for Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus. Do you think that's likely or is it going to be real politic taking over? And uh, Because you don't have to be a genius to work out that this could end up in the courts. Yeah, I think that's exactly where it's headed, and especially if they get a season's ban. But I have to say, I, I do think they're... I, asked right now, I think they'll get some sort of ban, even if it's just one season. I think there is that will within UEFA. And there's also, I mean... There, there, there is the genuine technical and almost legal problem for UEFA that they're still in this this competition, uh, and I, I don't think UEFA can be seen to allow it to stand, especially given the punishment for the the nine rebel clubs that that left the Super League has been seen as super weak, as someone in the game described it to me yesterday. Another another thing to kind of add into this week, I've done a big piece on the politics behind it, all of this, and also that the the issue that really shouldn't be uh, under appreciated here which is that we might well have an institutionalised Super League 
not just because of the kind of changes in the Champions League by issues like, you know, the coefficients of the extra games, but because of kind of, you know, the, the distribution of resources. I think one of the figures going into this kind of potential post-2024 world is that 30% of, uh, of Champions League prize money will be based on almost European Cup royalties, which is basically that you'll get more money if you've got an existing record in the competition. So it is almost money for turning up. And then, of course, there's all the, you know, there's this deal you for striking or, or this proposal, sorry, I should say, where there's going to be a, a, a five billion fund for so that clubs can take out uh, low interest loans, uh, as well as a, there's all sorts of kind of background politics again about the uh, issues like the future of the club World Cup, which again will just um, and talk of being almost like a Champions League on tour, and again we'll just see a group of clubs receive money to a far greater degree than anyone else, further affecting this disparity that led to the situation. So I have gone a little bit off track there. <laughs> but but uh, but I do think it's worth pointing out. But I I mean a lot. There's so much at play at the moment, and UEFA probably do need to kind of, given given the situation with the, with the nine rebel clubs and some of the criticism of the punishments there, I think they need to be seen to be strong here. And again, my hunch would be there will be some sort of ban. Now it might get fought in the courts. I mean, I think it would probably be inevitable to get fought in the courts. But we could be in for a really messy period in store. A messier than we've even seen with the Super League. Yeah, the, the the obvious assumption, Dan, is that if that ban goes ahead, you'll have those teams, those three, replaced by Real Sociedad, uh, Betis, and Napoli. You know, I happen to think that would be good for the the competition in terms of you know its diversity. Do you think that's you know, would that would you share that view that we do need to have a much more diverse Champions League? Yes, that's the, the, the romantic view, which let's broadly put ourselves into. The, the issue for UEFA is that, well, firstly, they need their, if they do you know, impose those sanctions, they need to, them to be enforceable in court. And secondly, is that they're in this kind of slightly caught between two houses where they need the Champions League to be successful in terms of you know, exposure and in terms of revenue globally. And yet they have to be prepared to cut out temporarily three of its potentially biggest clubs to save their own face. So it's a really difficult path for, for them to tread down because if they do nothing, they seem they rightly seem weak. If they do everything they can, they kind of risk A, both making those clubs more determined to force their own change and and B, they rely on them being enforceable in court. So, so yeah, as Mick says, it's going to get messy one way or another. Yeah. One good thing, we're told, Migs, that UEFA are going to consider on Friday scrapping the away goals rule entirely. Do you agree that we should do that? I have to say I waver on it a lot. The away goal does add a real intrigue to games. I think in the last few seasons, it, it has played a direct part in the scale of some of the brilliant spectacle we've seen in the Champions League where comebacks that have previously been seen as impossible were suddenly incredible. In saying all that, it is an anachronism. It was introduced in the 60s when basically, you know, teams would, teams would go away to countries from a, a thousand kilometres away or behind the Iron Curtain or, or for Iron Curtain teams the other way where there wasn't that as much scouting available and the natural instincts away from home were basically to keep it tight and not come out. So it was against that that they were basically encouraged to come out by, by a rule like the away goal. As we can see from all these comebacks, it's as if kind of home and away, and, and also because 
all football is so visible, there isn't the same mystique about going away from home. So they kind of mean the same thing. And there is probably the danger, actually, that for all that it infuses, that they, that the rule infuses kind of a spectacle, it often has a flip side effect where it can mean kind of the gap between sides is so great it can actually serve to kill the tension of a game. And, and how often have we been been in the stadium in a second leg or whatever and away goal is scored and you can feel that silence and that kind of that anxiety that goes around the stadium because by virtue of just scoring the away goal it just feels just, just too much to overcome <laughs> in short I don't know where I'm going with you or I don't know what side I agree on because there are real elements of the of the goal I like and, and they're just such an identifiable feature of European football but at the same time you, there, are, there are actual actual genuine logical arguments for ending with it I mean I have to say the romantic in me it just sees it as part of the tapestry in European football. And for that alone, I think it'd be a shame it went. Ah, oh, well, we're all card-carrying romantics, aren't we? <laughs> Looking at it a little bit more analytically, Dan, something struck me, and we, we just hinted at it a couple of minutes ago. Does the relative wealth of the Premier League encourage lazy thinking? You know, I'm, I'm thinking here in terms of you've got Lille winning their first league earned title for for 10 years after selling Pepe and Gabriel to Arsenal for 95 million. So in other words, Arsenal have funded Lille's championship. Is that significant? Yeah, yeah. well, it is significant. I don't don't know if lazy is is the right word because it it, it might well be deliberate. I kind of see it like grocery shopping. If you've got a very low amount of disposable income you might you know you might do meal plans and cook from scratch and look for cheap ingredients and make do a memory with what's in the cupboard and if you've got lots of disposable income you walk into a high-end supermarket and buy some ready meals or go out for dinner and it's kind of similar to that I, i'm not sure it's laziness i think it's just a kind of unique power that comes with having that relative fantastic wealth it means that you can allow smaller clubs to develop talent and and let's face it, give minutes to those talent at, at an age where they can develop, where you might not be prepared to. And therefore you pay this kind of super club tax where you know you're going to pay more for those players, but you're you're happy to do so because you're you can be more confident that the money you're spending is on a finished product. The the issue is when you spend the big money and you know, the the players you mentioned with Arsenal are, are probably two on which the jury is out when you spend the fantastic money and it doesn't quite work out. That's when it becomes a problem, I think. Yeah, I just want to leave this with the listeners. You know, the the, the thought of you know, Daniel Storey, domestic goddess, <laughs> trolling, trolling up and down the supermarket aisles. I think that was a wonderful image. Anyway, <laughs> I, 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 di- I digress, I apologise. Let's look forward, if we could, Migs to you know the tournament which you know will will generate a huge amount of interest over the next month or so the euros with the obvious proviso of a further injury and i would imagine that gareth southgate's heart missed a beat when he saw rashford limping about last night who do you think are the seven who will miss out from the england squad when it's trimmed down from 33 to 26 next tuesday well, it was one of the things that struck me when seeing that provisional squad, and, and, and it did almost look like, I suppose what, what Southgate described is basically most of the eventual squad, or maybe up to kind of 26, 28 names, and then a few players bolted on just to kind of allow for the kind of complications that Southgate spoke about with three of his clubs in Europe so late into the season. 
So, so some of the names are pretty obvious. I think it'll be one of Ramsdale or Johnston and misses out and go. Probably Ramsdale, I'd say. I think Godfrey and White will will drop out. Then obviously, of course, there's a decision over one of the right backs. Although from what from how Southgate spoke on Tuesday, and you know the way he went at length about Alexander Arnold, not least about a potential option in midfield, I wouldn't have the same concerns about Alexander Arnold there. I think he'll stay. I think Ward Prowse will probably go. I think Watkins will miss out, and then probably Greenwood and Saka. Yeah, again, I, 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 with a few of those, there are maybe there's a few knife edge decisions, particularly in the forward positions. But generally, that's how I'd see it. Mm. Where do you see the the right back debate ending up, Dan? I'm honestly not sure, which is 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 strange this close to a tournament. Um, I, I don't quite buy into the the flack that Southgate has received from from some over over Trent Alexander Arnold. It was it was interesting that he was at pains to say. As Migs refers to that I've been in constant contact with him over the last couple of months, etc. and so on. I couldn't quite work out whether that was preparing him to be in the squad or kind of preparing him to be left out of it. But the reality is, is that is that Southgate has well, he has a Premier League winning right back in Carl Walker, he has a La Liga winning right back in Kieran Trippier, both who played pretty well. He has Reese James as a a kind of more he sees as a more complete right back in terms of his defending. And he has Trent Alexander Arnold, who's played this plays this quite specific role, I suppose, for Liverpool, but that isn't used to the same degree with England. I'd like to see him go because I think he's a phenomenal talent. I think he can probably change a game if we need to bring him on. But when you only get three subs in a major tournament, is one of your attacking substitutions right back for right back? I don't know. Mm. Because be honest, Migs, you know, I looked at that squad and I saw just a hint of indecision. Also, when you look at it, we're talking about trimming down to 26. Well, we are used to squads of 23. Within that, does he have any room for manoeuvre within that? Because I'd like to see, you know, let's look at the defence. I still think we're a centre-back short. I think Godfrey in particular has got something about him and may well train on, as it were, in international football. Why not? pick a player like that this time around I, I, I do think there was an element of basically Soke kind of he, hedging his bets I, I have to say I'd lean towards a more forgiving view to him I, I think he is in a tricky situation with the amount of players out, and I think you're right there could have been a chance for giving players a bit a, others a bit more scope but ultimately I think it's just about I, I think he largely knows what a squad is going to be it's about maybe filling some roles until he can get the full squad together. The one thing that struck me in Tuesday, particularly from a writing perspective, given I have to analyse it, the way it so quickly went from, okay, we're going to have Southgate's full squad to then this kind of halfway house provisional squad, uh, which uh, took a lot of kind of energy out of a lot of discussions, with that, of course, now being transferred to next week instead. Yeah. We've also, you know, those discussions next week, the the elephant in the room will be, okay, well, I know this is a, a pretty diverse tournament in terms of venues, but ultimately semi-finals and finals are going to be at Wembley. So it's football's coming home. You know, a lot more royalties for that particular song going to flood in. Do we overestimate our potential as a as a footballing nation, especially in this in these Euros, Dan? 
I don't think we overestimate our potential. I think from 2017 onwards, when, when England's youth teams had that phenomenal, unprecedented year of, of under-17, 19, under-20 major tournament wins, seven, I think, of those players from that underage summer are, are already in the first team and there are others knocking on the door. The potential is definitely there. I think where we lack is, I think Southgate is a is a decent bloke and I think he's a decent coach but he I don't think he's a, a truly elite coach yet and, and he might not even describe himself as that yet so I think we, we probably lack there and we lack in that kind of tournament know-how that even with the you know the joy of 2018 we never really truly displayed it except maybe against Sweden in that kind of comfortable quarterfinal which England were for favourites for anyway so I think we lack in those areas but the, the, my big issue with this tournament is the last 16 draw because England, if England win the group, they will probably play one of France, Germany and Portugal in the last 16, having come through a fairly, in you know, in inverted commas, gentle group stage draw. And I just worry about them getting caught a little bit cold in that scenario against a team that will already have played against two really good nations and got through. So that's that's my big concern. Ideally, I'd like England to finish second in the group on goal difference and get a lovely pathway through our 2018, but we don't always get what we want and England are going to have to face up to a pretty tough task in the last 16, I think. Mm. It's been interesting looking at some of the squads that Migs. That French squad terrifies me. What about you? Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely stacked. <laughs> The strength and depth of French football right now is remarkable. And it probably ties in, I, mean, I remember hearing about two years ago, I mean, you've, you've covered the issues like this a lot, Mike, as, <laughs> as Dan has already mentioned, but where I think Paris is one of the three areas in the world uh, uh, where there, there's the, basically the, the talent production and the amount of kind of professional, semi-professional footballers. It, it, it's, it's the greatest proportion up there with Sao Paulo, I think it was. And apparently the other one was also South London. Mm. But, you know, you, I, and th- I think this, is, this has been one of the kind of shifts in international football in the past decade that was probably actually precipitated by France and, and, and the original cycle in the, in the 90s where the major Western European nations have almost industrialised youth production. So we first saw with France, then saw with Spain, then saw with Germany, now see with France again and and England as as Dan has referenced there are along the same lines. But it's we've finally seen a situation where all the football money in these countries is translating into proper talent production, and and it it does just mean right now that the, the level of football of France has right through all age groups and even when you, we, we we could be talking about there maybe several layers of backup squads. It's so strong. The interesting thing, I suppose, is that there's maybe, for all that quality, there has been a slight gap maybe in creativity. I don't think that really says that about French football. I think it's just one of those things, one of those kind of freakish things that happens from time to time. But what it's done is also maybe inadvertently solve one of the issues that Deschamps had, which was the kind of, I suppose, the ongoing controversy over Karim Benzema, uh, and also maybe a little bit of a lack of creativity in that French team. And at a stroke, it, it, it solved both of those. And, and and ultimately, we have a situation now where on top of all this quality, France have brought in one of the best forwards in Europe. Yeah, I, I, what I find intriguing about French football is Paris Saint-Germain. They, they seem to be almost out of kilter with the rest in terms of, OK, you know, as you said, Migs, Paris is a is a huge hotbed of talent. A lot of 
former or, or products of the PSG Academy are playing for other clubs really effectively at the moment. You've got, and I'm sort of linking it back a little bit to, to managers, you've got Maurizio Pochettino obviously making it known that he's unhappy at PSG and has, you know, has held talks with Daniel Levy about maybe going back. Now, you know, the club are saying that they've got no intention of allowing him to leave. But there is a disconnect at that club that I can't quite get my head around, Dan. Are you the same? Yes, but maybe then I also I also wonder if it's it's a kind of inevitable when you you know I don't like to use the word plastic because it, it kind of infers social media tribalism, but there is a degree to which everything has been gold plated, and it, it, there are things within football and the production of those young players in various places is one of them that you you, you can make better with money but you can't completely manufacture and I think that's where PSG have fallen short and it's where Manchester City we should say to kind of bring it back to where we started is what where they succeeded because they didn't just appoint Pep Guardiola because he was the best they considered him the best coach in the world they they appointed Pep Guardiola because they'd effectively revamped and re, you know rebuilt their hierarchy around the appointment of him to make things as easy as possible and I don't know if PSG have done that by you know the coaches that they've let between have been good coaches but have not necessarily ever been seen as the best coaches in the world at the time which given that they consider themselves you know rightful their rightful destiny is to be the best and the biggest club in the world that that strikes me as odd yeah I just like if I could chaps to end on a on a really depressingly tiresome theme abusive social media. I just want to read if I could to preface you know a brief debate two tweets posted by Marcus Rashford following defeat in the Europa League final. Uh, the first read at least 70 racial slurs on my social accounts counted so far. For those working to make me feel any worse than I already do, good luck trying. It was the second one that really got me. It read, I'm more outraged that one of the abusers that left a mountain of monkey emojis in my DM is a maths teacher with an open profile. He teaches children and knows that he can freely racially abuse without consequence. That's the point, isn't it, Mix? No consequence. Yeah, that's completely. Yeah. And I suppose this has been the ongoing issue with with the social media companies, where there's this this free reign that people say what they like, and bar some small examples, we're not we're, we're not we're not seeing any repercussions. And and it has probably it's what it feels like has happened as well. It's almost created this atmosphere where. It's if people almost dare themselves to go as far as they can on social media because there, there's no restriction. I think there's a very weird mindset in all of that. I mean, look, I mean, that goes without saying, given someone's posting racist abuse. But it feels like there's an element of kind of base racism to it. And also something else that social media does in this regard where it almost brings this out. I mean, to most of us, it's inexplicable. But from a wider perspective as well, I also think it shows the importance. This is why players continue to take the knee. It is it is essentially to 
I know that there's a wider tapestry, but it is essentially to keep awareness of, of, of issues precisely like this and keep a spotlight on the fact this, this hasn't gone away and, 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 and tragically doesn't look like going away for some time. Yeah, it fills me with despair. What about you, Dan? Absolutely, of course. It's, this, it's the fact that, that, that players and high-profile people of colour chose to stand up and, and, and kind of make a deal of this. And let's not forget the courage they took because they foresaw this happening. You know, they aren't stupid. They knew that there was a chance that it would take either a long time for social media companies to react or that no reaction or insufficient reaction would come. And therefore, if anything, they were... You know, the, the saddest thing here is that in by taking that stand, all it seems to do in some sense is fuel those people to think, well, I'm going to continue doing this because I'm clearly getting a reaction. That's the horrible thing, that without the social media companies meeting them even halfway, they're kind of leaving them out to get worse abuse. And that's obviously totally unacceptable. Mm. Should we all just bail out of social media? It's something that I've thought about. You know, I suppose just to sum up, Marcus Rashford has been a a beacon of hope throughout a long, difficult and complex season. He's led the fight against childhood poverty. He's inspired many of those kids to read. Yet principal among his abusers last night was a teacher, an educator. That beggars belief. Online campaigns like BT Sports Draw the Line have identified the problem, but it's still out of control. Social media companies continue to dodge their responsibilities. They merely wait for the PR storm to subside. In my view, we need a raft of high-profile arrests. These people need to be named and shamed. Otherwise, what's the point? We'll be returning to this issue next season, the season after that, and the season after that. What would you do? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Daniel for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.